0: Section 17 of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. By James Boswell. Section 17. 1752. Etat 43. In 1752 he was almost entirely occupied with his dictionary. The last paper of his Rambler was published March 2 this year, after which there was a cessation for some time of any exertion of his talents as an essayist. But in the same year Dr. Hawksworth, who was his warm admirer, and a studious imitator of his style, and then lived in great intimacy with him, began a periodical paper entitled The Adventurer, in connection with other gentlemen one of whom was Johnson's much-loved friend, Dr. Bathurst, and, without doubt, they received many valuable hints from his conversation, most of his friends having been so assisted in the course of their works. That there should be a suspension of his literary labors during a part of the year 1752 will not seem strange, when it is considered that soon after closing his rambler, he suffered a loss which, there can be no doubt, affected him with the deepest distress. For on the 17th of March, O.S., his wife died. Why Sir John Hawkins should unwarrantably take upon him even to suppose that Johnson's fondness for her was dissembled, meaning simulated or assumed, and to assert that if it was not the case it was a lesson he had learned by rote, I cannot conceive— unless it proceeded from a want of similar feelings in his own breast. To argue from her being much older than Johnson, or any other circumstances, that he could not really love her, is absurd, for love is not a subject of reasoning, but of feeling, and therefore there are no common principles upon which one can persuade another concerning it. Every man feels for himself, and knows how he is affected by particular qualities in the person he admires, the impressions of which are too minute and delicate to be substantiated in language. The following very solemn and affecting prayer was found after Dr. Johnson's decease, by his servant, Mr. Francis Barber, who delivered it to my worthy friend the Reverend Mr. Strahan, vicar of Islington, who at my earnest request has obligingly favored me with a copy of it, which he and I compared with the original. I present it to the world as an undoubted proof of a circumstance in the character of my illustrious friend, which, though some whose hard minds I shall never envy, may attack as superstitious, will, I am sure, endear him more to numbers of good men. I have an additional, and that a personal motive for presenting it, because it sanctions what I myself have always maintained, and am fond to indulge. April twenty sixth, 1752, being after twelve at night of the twenty-fifth. O Lord, Governor of heaven and earth, in whose hands are embodied and departed spirits, if Thou hast ordained the souls of the dead to minister to the living, and appointed my departed wife to have care of me, grant that I may enjoy the good effects of her attention and ministration whether exercised by appearance, impulses, dreams, or in any other manner agreeable to thy government. Forgive my presumption, enlighten my ignorance, and however meaner agents are employed, grant me the blessed influence of thy Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What actually followed upon this most interesting piece of devotion by Johnson, we are not informed, But I, whom it has pleased God to afflict in a similar manner to that which occasioned it, have certain experience of benignant communication by dreams. That his love for his wife was of the most ardent kind, and during the long period of fifty years was unimpaired by the lapse of time, is evident from various passages in the series of his Prayers and Meditations, published by the Rev. Mr. Strahan, as well as from other memorials, two of which I select as strongly marking the tenderness and sensibility of his mind. March twenty-eighth, 1753. I kept this day as the anniversary of my Teddy's death, with prayer and tears in the morning. In the evening I prayed for her conditionally, if it were lawful. April twenty-three, seventeen fifty-three. I know not whether I do not too much indulge the vain longings of affection, but I hope they inundate my heart, and that when I die, like my Teddy, this affection will be acknowledged in a happy interview, and that in the meantime I am incited to it by piety. I will, however, not deviate too much from common and received methods of devotion. Her wedding-ring, when she became his wife, was, after her death, preserved by him, as long as he lived, with an affectionate care, in a little round wooden box, in the inside of which he pasted a slip of paper, thus inscribed by him in fair characters, as follows. Eua Elizabeth Johnson, Nukcha, July 9, 1736. Mortua, Eheu, March 17, 1752. After his death, Mr. Francis Barber, his faithful servant and residuary legatee, offered this memorial of tenderness to Mrs. Lucy Porter, mrs johnson's daughter but she having declined to accept of it he had it enamelled as a mourning ring for his old master and presented it to his wife mrs barber who now has it the state of mind in which a man must be upon the death of a woman whom he sincerely loves had been in his contemplation many years before in his irene we find the following fervent and tender speech of demetrius addressed to his aspasia from those bright regions of eternal day, where now thou shinest among thy fellow-saints, arrayed in pure light, look down on me, in pleasing visions and delusive dreams, O soothe my soul, and teach me how to lose thee. I have, indeed, been told by Mrs. de Moulins, who before her marriage lived for some time with Mrs. Johnson at Hampstead, that she indulged herself in country air and nice living at an unsuitable expense, while her husband was drudging in the smoke of London, and that she by no means treated him with that complacency which is the most engaging quality in a wife. But all this is perfectly compatible with his fondness for her, especially when it is remembered that he had a high opinion of her understanding, and that the impressions which her beauty, real or imaginary, had originally made upon his fancy, being continued by habit, had not been effaced though she herself was doubtless much altered for the worse. The dreadful shock of separation took place in the night, and he immediately dispatched a letter to his friend, the Reverend Dr. Taylor, which, as Taylor told me, expressed grief in the strongest manner he had ever read, so that, it is much to be regretted, it has not been preserved. The letter was brought to Dr. Taylor at his house, in the Cloisters, Westminster, about three in the morning and, as it signified an earnest desire to see him, he got up and went to Johnson as soon as he was dressed, and found him in tears and in extreme agitation. After being a little while together, Johnson requested him to join with him in prayer. He then prayed extempore, as did Dr. Taylor, and thus, by means of that piety which was ever his primary object, his troubled mind was, in some degree, soothed and composed. The next day he wrote as follows to the Rev. Dr. Taylor, Dear Sir, let me have your company and instruction. Do not live away from me. my distress is great. Pray desire Mrs. Taylor to inform me what morning I should buy for my mother and Miss Porter, and bring a note in writing with you. Remember me in your prayers, for vain is the help of man. I am dear Sir, and etc. Sam Johnson. March eighteenth, seventeen 1752. That his sufferings upon the death of his wife were severe, beyond what are commonly endured, I have no doubt, from the information of many who were then about him, to none of whom I give more credit than to Mr. Francis Barber, his faithful negro servant, who came into his family about a fortnight after the dismal event. These sufferings were aggravated by the melancholy inherent in his constitution, and although he probably was not oftener in the wrong than she was in the little disagreements which sometimes troubled his married state during which he owned to me that the gloomy irritability of his existence was more painful to him than ever he might very naturally after her death be tenderly disposed to charge himself with slight omissions and offences the sense of which would give him much uneasiness accordingly we find about a year after her decease that he thus addressed the Supreme Being. O Lord, who givest the grace of repentance, and hearest the prayers of the penitent, grant that, by true contrition, I may obtain forgiveness of all the sins committed, and of all duties neglected, in my union with the wife whom thou hast taken from me. For the neglect of joint devotion, patient exhortation, and mild instruction. The kindness of his heart, notwithstanding the impetuosity of his temper, is well known to his friends, and I cannot trace the smallest foundation for the following dark and uncharitable assertion by Sir John Hawkins. The apparition of his departed wife was altogether of the terrific kind, and hardly afforded him a hope that she was in a state of happiness. That he, in conformity with the opinion of many of the most able, learned and pious christians in all ages supposed that there was a middle state after death previous to the time at which departed souls are finally received to eternal felicity appears i think unquestionably from his devotions and o lord so far as it may be lawful in me i commend to thy fatherly goodness the soul of my departed wife beseeching thee to grant her whatever is best in her present state and finally to receive her to eternal happiness. But this state has not been looked upon with horror, but only as less gracious. He deposited the remains of Mrs. Johnson in the church of Bromley, in Kent, to which he was probably led by the residence of his friend Hawksworth at that place. The funeral sermon which he composed for her, which was never preached, but having been given to Dr. Taylor, has been published since his death, is a performance of uncommon excellence and full of rational and pious comfort to such as are depressed by that severe affliction which johnson felt when he wrote it when it is considered that it was written in such an agitation of mind and in the short interval between her death and burial it cannot be read without wonder for mr francis barber i have had the following authentic and artless account of the situation in which he found himself recently after its wife's death he was in great affliction. Mrs. Williams was then living in his house, which was in Gow Square. He was busy with the dictionary. Mr. Shiel's and some others of the gentlemen who had formerly written for him, used to come about him. He then had little for himself, but frequently sent money to Mr. Shiel's when in distress. The friends who visited him at that time were chiefly Dr. Bathurst and Mr. Diamond, an apothecary in Cork Street, Burlington Gardens, with whom he and Mrs. Williams generally dined every Sunday. There was a talk of his going to Iceland with him, which would probably have happened had he lived. There were also Mr. Cave, Mr. Hawksworth, Mr. Ryland, merchant on Tower Hill, Mrs. Masters, the poetess who lived with Mr. Cave, Mrs. Carter, and sometimes Mrs. Macaulay, also Mrs. Gardner, wife of a tallow-chandler on Snow Hill, not in the learned way, but a worthy good woman, Mr., now Sir Joshua Reynolds, Mr. Miller, Mr. Dodsley, Mr. Bouquet, Mr. Payne of Paternoster Row, booksellers, Mr. Strahan, the printer, the Earl of Orrery, Lord Southwell, Mr. Garrick. Note. Dr. Bathurst, though a physician of no inconsiderable merit, had not the good fortune to get much practice in London. He was therefore willing to accept of employment abroad, and to the great regret of all who knew him fell a sacrifice to the destructive climate in the expedition against the Havana. Mr. Langton recollects the following passage in a letter from Dr. Johnston to Mr. Beauclerk. The Havana is taken, a conquest too dearly obtained, for Bathurst died before it. Vix priamis tati totoc toya fruit. End of note. Many are, no doubt, omitted in this catalogue of his friends, and in particular his humble friend, Mr. Robert Levitt, an obscure practicer in physic among the lower people, his fees being sometimes very small sums, sometimes whatever provision his patients could afford him, but of such extensive practice in that way that Mrs. Williams has told me his walk was from Houndsditch to Marybone. It appears from Johnson's diary that their acquaintance commenced about the year seventeen forty six, and such was Johnson's predilection for him, and fanciful estimation of his moderate abilities, that I have heard him say he should not be satisfied, though attended by all the college of physicians, unless he had Mr. Levitt with him. Ever since I was acquainted with Dr. Johnson, and many years before, as I have been assured by those who knew him earlier, Mr. Levitt had an apartment in his house, or his chambers, and waited upon him every morning, through the whole course of his late and tedious breakfast. He was of a strange, grotesque appearance, stiff and formal in his manner, and seldom said a word while any company was present. The circle of his friends, indeed, at this time, was extensive and various, far beyond what has generally been imagined to trace his acquaintance with each particular person if it could be done would be a task of which the labor would not be repaid by the advantage but exceptions are to be made one of which must be a friend so eminent as sir joshua reynolds who was truly his dulce and with whom he maintained an uninterrupted intimacy to the last hour of his life when johnson lived in castle street cavendish square he used frequently to visit two ladies, who lived opposite to him, Miss Cotterell's daughters of Admiral Cotterell. Reynolds used also to visit there, and thus they met. Mr. Reynolds, as I have observed above, had, from the first reading of his life of savage, conceived a very high admiration of Johnson's powers of writing. His conversation no less delighted him, and he cultivated his acquaintance with the laudable zeal of one who was ambitious of general improvement. Sir Joshua, indeed, was lucky enough at their very first meeting to make a remark, which was so much above the commonplace style of conversation, that Johnson at once perceived that Reynolds had the habit of thinking for himself. The ladies were regretting the death of a friend, to whom they owed great obligations, upon which Reynolds observed, You have, however, the comfort of being relieved from a burthen of gratitude. They were shocked a little at this alleviating suggestion, as too selfish, but Johnson defended it in his clear and forcible manner, and was much pleased with the mind, the fair view of human nature, which it exhibited, like some of the reflections of Rochefakot. The consequence was that he went home with Reynolds and supped with him. Sir Joshua told me a pleasant, characteristical anecdote of Johnson about the time of their first acquaintance. When they were one evening together at the Miss Cotterels, the Duchess of Argyll and another lady of high rank came in. Johnson, thinking that the Miss Cotterels were too much engrossed by them, and that he and his friends were neglected, as low company of whom they were somewhat ashamed, grew angry, and resolving to shock their supposed pride by making their great visitors imagine that his friend and he were low indeed, he addressed himself in a loud tone to Mr. Reynolds, saying, "'How much do you think you and I could get in a week, if we were to work as hard as we could?' as if they had been common mechanics. His acquaintance with Bennet Langton, Esquire of Langton, in Lincolnshire, was another much valued friend, commenced soon after the conclusion of his rambler, which that gentleman, then a youth, had read with so much admiration, that he came to London chiefly with the view of endeavouring to be introduced to its author.' By a fortunate chance he happened to take lodgings in a house where Mr. Levitt frequently visited, and having mentioned his wish to his landlady, she introduced him to Mr. Levitt, who readily obtained Johnson's permission to bring Mr. Langton to him, as, indeed, Johnson, during the whole course of his life, had no shyness, real or affected, but was easy of access to all who were properly recommended, and even wished to see numbers at his levee, as his morning circle of company might with strict propriety be called mr langton was exceedingly surprised when the sage first appeared he had not received the smallest intimation of his figure dress or manner from perusing his writings he fancied he should see a decent well-dressed in short a remarkably decorous philosopher instead of which down from his bedchamber about noon came as a newly risen a huge, uncouth figure, with a little dark wig which scarcely covered his head, and his clothes hanging loose about him. But his conversation was so rich, so animated, and so forcible, and his religious and political notions so congenial with those in which Langton had been educated, that he conceived for him that veneration and attachment which he ever preserved. Johnson was not the less ready to love Mr. Langton, for his being of a very ancient family, for I have heard him say with pleasure, Langton, sir, has a great want of free Warren from Henry the Second, and Cardinal Stephen Langton, in King John's reign, was of this family. Mr. Langton afterwards went to pursue his studies at Trinity College, Oxford, where he formed an acquaintance with his fellow-student, Mr. Topham Beauclerk, who, though their opinions and modes of life were so different that it seemed utterly improbable that they should at all agree, had so ardent a love of literature, so acute an understanding, such an elegance of manners, and so well discerned the excellent qualities of Mr. Langton, a gentleman eminent not only for worth and learning, but for an inexhaustible fund of entertaining conversation, that they became intimate friends. Johnson, soon after this acquaintance began, passed a considerable time at Oxford. He at first thought it strange that Langton should associate so much with one who had the character of being loose, both in his principles and practice, but by degrees he himself was fascinated. Mr. Beauclerc's being of the St. Albans family, and having, in some particulars, a resemblance to Charles the Second, contributed, in Johnson's imagination, to throw a luster upon his other qualities, and in a short time the moral, pious Johnson and the gay, dissipated Beauclerc were companions. "'What a coalition!' said Garrick, when he heard of this. "'I shall have my old friend to bail out of the roundhouse.' But I can bear testimony that it was a very agreeable association. Beauclerc was too polite, and valued learning and wit too much, to offend Johnson by sallies of infidelity or licentiousness, and Johnson delighted in the good qualities of Beauclerc, and hoped to correct the evil. Innumerable were the scenes in which Johnson was amused by these young men. Beauclerc could take more liberty with him than anybody with whom I ever saw him, but on the other hand Beauclerc was not spared by his respectable companion when reproof was proper. Beauclerc had such a propensity to satire that at one time Johnson said to him, "'You never open your mouth,' but with intention to give pain. And you have often given me pain, not from the power of what you said, but from seeing your intention. At another time, applying to him, with a slight alteration, a line of Pope, he said, Thy love of folly, and thy scorn of fools. Everything thou dost shows the one, and everything thou sayest the other. At another time he said to him, Thy body is all thy vice, and thy mind all virtue. Beauclerc, not seeming to relish the compliment, Johnson said, "'Nay, sir, Alexander the Great, marching in triumph into Babylon, could not have desired to have more said to him.'" Johnson was some time with Beauclerc at his house at Windsor, where he was entertained with experiments in natural philosophy. One Sunday, when the weather was very fine, Beauclerc enticed him, insensibly, to saunter about all the morning. They went into a churchyard in the time of divine service, and Johnson laid himself down at his ease upon one of the tombstones. "'Now, sir,' said Beauclerc, "'you are like Hogarth's idle apprentice.' When Johnson got his pension, Beauclerc said to him, in the humorous phrase of Falstaff, "'I hope you'll now purge and live cleanly like a gentleman.' One night when Beauclerc and Langton had supped at a tavern in London, and sat till about three in the morning, it came into their heads to go and knock up Johnson and see if they could prevail on him to join them in a ramble they rapped violently at the door of his chambers in the temple till at last he appeared in his shirt with his little black wig on the top of his head instead of a nightcap and a poker in his hand imagining probably that some ruffians were coming to attack him when he discovered who they were and was told their errand he smiled and with great humor agreed to their proposal "'What? Is it you, you dogs? I'll have a frisk with you.' He was soon dressed, and they sallied forth together into Covent Garden, where the greengrocers and fruiterers were beginning to arrange their hampers, just come in from the country. Johnson made some attempts to help them, but the honest gardener stared so at his figure and manner, and odd interference, that he soon saw his services were not relished. They then repaired to one of the neighboring taverns, and made a bowl of that liquor called Bishop, which Johnson had always liked, while in joyous contempt of sleep, from which he had been roused, he repeated the festive lines, Short, O short, then, be thy reign, and give us to the world again. They did not stay long, but walked down to the Thames, took a boat, and rowed to Billingsgate. Beauclerk and Johnson were so well pleased with their amusement that they resolved to preserve in dissipation for the rest of the day. But Langton deserted them, being engaged to breakfast with some young ladies. Johnson scolded him for leaving his social friends to go and sit with a set of wretched, unidead girls. Garrick, being told of this ramble, said to him smartly, "'I heard of your frolic t'other night. You'll be in the Chronicle.' Upon which Johnson afterwards observed, he durst not do such a thing, his wife would not let him End of section seventeen